Today, on Point01, Aaron Cohn sits down with Shafali Kapadia, senior editor of Supply Chain Dive, a digital news outlet that focuses on logistics, transportation, e-commerce, trade, and sourcing. In this episode, Shafali shares her findings on how COVID-19 has affected the rapidly changing international logistics infrastructure. Without further ado, here's Aaron and Shafali. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Point01 podcast. I am here with Shefali Kapadia, who I think has a really easy name to spell, but apparently she tells me that's not the case. You just sound it out, right, Shefali? You know, I would think so. It seems pretty phonetic to me, but it's amazing the uh, the strange things people come up with. And I've been called Stephanie before, so I've heard it all. Right. I mean, one thing we can say about you is you're exceptionally Googleable. You as the as the senior editor and really the editor, it looks like to me, of Supply Chain Dive, right? This is your this is your beat. Yeah. So um, Supply Chain Dive is is one of the publications, and I'm also managing Transport Dive since they kind of go hand in hand. And of course, there's so much happening with logistics and trucking, and lots to keep up with on a daily basis. Give people before we start to talk about significant issues. What have the last six months or seven months been like for you in terms of the beat, who's in touch with you? What's work been like? It's, I mean, insane would be a good word to kind of just sum it all up. Um, But, you know, supply chain was one of the first things that really was affected when the pandemic hit and before it even really came to the U.S. because all of these companies importing from China were feeling the effects of the manufacturing slowdowns there and the seaports being shut down there. And so it was the supply chains were kind of on alert starting in January, February, before we really started to see the lockdowns in the country. And and did that give you a sense of of what was coming here? I mean, take us back to your January and your February. Was your sense that things could spin out of control in the United States pretty quickly? Or or how did you what what was your life like in January? I think there was certainly a realization that this pandemic was not going to stay in China. It wasn't just going to be Italy. It wasn't just going to be those few first countries. Like it was coming to the US. Well, of course we didn't want it to, but it was going to come. But I don't think that I realized the magnitude of how quickly it would spread or how much, I I certainly didn't think I would still be working from home at this point. Uh, So that one I didn't see coming. I'm not sure anybody did but just how much it spiraled and kept going and going has been, uh, you know, definitely caught me off guard. What stories were coming at you? How did you function as an editor? So it's so funny because uh, I would say maybe sometime in mid-February, I told one of my reporters, hey, it looks like this coronavirus thing might be a story. This week, I want you to be on that beat. I want you to just follow it. And I want you to get in touch with a bunch of companies and see what's happening. And, you know, next week we'll reevaluate. Well, that was totally wrong because clearly this became the only story, essentially. When you really look at the work at your beat, UPS, FedEx, DHL, the logistics companies are hugely important. How have you watched them respond? What companies have impressed you? What companies do you think have struggled more than others? Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that everyone has struggled a little bit during this time. I mean, just everyone from whether it was the retailer, the manufacturer, the logistics provider, the trucking company, there was just 
so much uncertainty. We just didn't know what consumers or businesses were going to do or how they were going to react. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the approach that the carriers have taken in many cases is to limit the volume that's coming in. And part of that is those surcharges that I was talking about. Um, but, you know, UPS says we can we have to be able to provide the services that we promise. Therefore, we cannot take all of this, um, you know, volume into our network. And so that's a lot of reasons that they have started to do the peak surcharges and make sure that there's not too much stuff coming in that they can't handle. Give people a sense of what you've learned, and then we'll talk about what you think is going to kind of transpire over the next year or so. Sure. So one of the things with the vaccine supply chain is it's just so incredibly complex because depending on the type of vaccine, it's going to need a very specific temperature that it has to be maintained at at all times. And even a couple minutes outside of that temperature range could damage an entire shipment worth of vaccines. And the other thing here is that there are so many touch points. So if you think about um, you know, a supply chain in something like a food or a grocery store, it would be from the distributor warehouse to the grocery store, kind of that, you know, just from a truck in the warehouse to the store. But if you think about a vaccine, you've got to go from the manufacturer probably to uh, an air hub. And then there's, you know, more localized trucks that go around the air hub. And then there's the actual airplane. And then once the airplane lands, there's all that trucking again, and then to whichever facility is gonna distribute the vaccine. So each and every single one of all of those components has to have the right infrastructure to keep the vaccine at the right temperature and the right humidity. And there's just so many complicating factors. And there's tons of companies that are working on technologies and you know infrastructure to make this happen, but Kind of the the short story is there's a lot that could go wrong just in that transit portion of it. And in your reporting, uh, is your are you and your team finding out that all of these uh, both supporting industries and the vaccine itself are done abroad, or do we manufacture any of these supplies within our border that? of consequence. So uh, it's pretty distributed across the globe in terms of where things are manufactured. Um, but a lot of times the component parts tend to still come from one dominant source. So with actual pharmaceutical ingredients, a lot of those inputs tend to come from China or India. Um, and those just aren't necessarily made or available in the US. So even if you've got your final manufacturing facility in the US, there's a good chance that you're still importing something from another country. And uh, are the trade challenges with China a possible issue for being able to scale up and distribute uh, the vaccine, uh, given that so much, so many of the raw materials are coming from China? Yeah, there's certainly been, you know, I'm sure that um, all the listeners have heard of the tariffs that have happened over the last two years or so. And there was a lot of push from the healthcare industry in the United States to say, can we get a break on these tariffs? Can they be lifted? And there were some exceptions made for critical supplies, um, but those are more of the finished goods, critical supplies in healthcare. So, you know, a 
an ingredient. Exactly. And so an ingredient coming in from China may not necessarily, maybe it has multiple purposes, one of which is a healthcare product that doesn't necessarily have a tariff lifted on it. So yeah, the importer would still be paying that. And, And the other thing that was happening too, was a lot of countries and, you know, it makes sense is that they were reserving the ingredients and supplies they had for domestic populations first before exporting them to other countries. And so that created some issues for the U.S., particularly in the beginning when, you know, India and China said, like, well, we've got to make sure that our own population has access to PPE and, um, you know, any certain drugs that are needed before we start sending them overseas. I'd like to move a little bit to the food supply chain now. Um, Clearly, this also has been a major area of focus over the last six months. Um, Talk about where you've seen the pressure points there as well. You know, people are cooking more. They're buying more food from supermarkets. Supermarket business is soaring. Where has the pressure been in the food supply chain over these during the pandemic? Yeah, the food supply chain is a really fascinating one. Um, And just a lot of that came from the restaurants shutting down. And if you think about, uh, you know, if you think about you go to the grocery store and you want to buy, let's say, potatoes. So you're going to buy them either individually or in a five pound bag that's labeled with a nice packaging design that shows you everything about it. Well, the people who distribute the potatoes, yeah, they had some stuff ready for the grocery store, but they also had a lot that were ready for a restaurant. And a restaurant doesn't buy in five pound increments. They buy in way more pounds than that (laughs) to make things in bulk, to make French fries, to make whatever it might be. Um, And they don't have this, you know, nice packaging on there that a grocery store shelf would have. So just that discrepancy between the restaurant, let's say, you know, food service restaurant was half of the business and grocery was the other half of the business, it was totally skewed towards grocery. And that caused so many disruptions way up the supply chain. Have restaurants recovered enough so that that's less of a disruption than it was in the spring? Or are you still seeing all kinds of inability to get supermarkets what they need? It's kind of interesting. I spoke to someone um, a little while ago that said demand is actually more unpredictable now than it was in March and April. And at first I thought that doesn't make any sense. And then I realized that it makes complete sense because in March and April, it was just blanket shutdowns. The restaurants are barely operating. Some are doing some limited takeout business. There's absolutely no, um, you know, office cafeteria orders. There's no school orders. Schools are a huge buyer from the uh, food industry. And so there was just none. And it was very clear that the demand is skewed towards groceries and home shopping. Now we're in this sort of, some things are opening. In some states, some things are opening. And it's very hard for the manufacturers to predict where the demand is going to go. So have restaurants fully reopened to pre-pandemic levels? I don't think so. And same with other food service in terms of offices or schools. Some are open, some not, not necessarily. Um, So I think it's still skewed in the direction of grocery, but it's getting harder and harder to predict how much is going to go to that channel versus how much is going to go to restaurant and food service channels. What are you seeing about, uh, just broadly speaking, 
the overhaul of the supply chain to make it more uh, environmentally friendly? There's a huge number of efforts that are going on in this realm. And I think it's because there's a realization, not only from the companies, but from consumers of how much something like transportation plays a role in greenhouse gas emissions globally. Um, So certainly on the domestic front, trucking is making a really, really big push. Um, You know, you can kind of question whether the motive is corporate, whether it's regulatory. California has a lot of regulatory requirements about zero emissions vehicles. Um, But they are the trucking companies are making a, a huge push as well as their manufacturers on electric vehicles. So whether that's a battery electric, whether that's a hydrogen fuel cell, um, whether it's a hybrid model, anything that can reduce diesel fuel emissions, even cleaner diesel in some cases, is a big priority for especially the big trucking companies, but kind of anyone who is operating a fleet, whether it's a, you know, contracted out one or whether it's a private fleet within a company. So, you know, the name of this podcast is Point O One, and it refers to this idea that for every thousand companies, one of them might be able to break through and make a super meaningful difference in curbing greenhouse gas emissions. And, and and hopefully salvaging the planet and slowing warming. Uh, as you've covered these beats, uh, both before the pandemic and during the pandemic, are there companies that stand out to you as, you know, one day they could be Teslas, one day they could be Beyond Meats or Impossible Foods? Have you seen companies that have really floored you in terms of their ambition in this regard? Uh, you know, it's it's tough to say if there's one specific company because there's a lot of efforts going on and there's different focuses. You know, some are primarily looking at carbon emissions in terms of transport, while others are looking at reducing waste and this idea of circularity in the supply chain of, you know, not things not ending up in the landfill, but rather coming back and being recycled and reused. Um, so, you know, one company I would point out is um, I think Nestle has made a lot of initiatives in terms of, uh, you know, reducing deforestation since they rely a lot on things like um, palm oil and other products. And, um, you know, similarly with things like cocoa and making sure that all of those are more sustainable measures. Um, And they've certainly done a bit with recycling and and ensuring that circular supply chain is happening. And there has been a number of kind of group efforts too of, you know, of numerous ocean shipping carriers joining forces and saying, okay, we got to work to make sure that our ships are more sustainable. Um, Maersk is one of the largest ocean shipping carriers, and they have said that they want to be carbon neutral within the next few decades. Um, So that is going to be, you know, certainly a big push to, to make sure something like that happens. And they've said, you know, we need the vessel manufacturers to get involved to make ships that are able to be designed to be carbon neutral. And we need all the various stakeholders in this involved to make it happen. So it's certainly a collaboration that, you know, one company can make a lot of effort, but there's a lot of companies and other, you know, groups that need to come together and and certainly push forward this reduction in climate change. And and for yourself, right, you know, you're from a generation that has this super on their mind on a regular basis. You are the climate generation. Uh, 
And you you cover a you you cover a set of industries that create a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. How optimistic are you personally that these are industries that are going to reform and make meaningful changes over, let's just say, the next decade? So I'm a journalist, which means that I'm naturally skeptical, <laughs> just to preface that. Um, I think that there's a lot of efforts being made. So not to downplay those in any way. There's a lot of work happening to assess, how, first of all, just coming up with a baseline. How much are we emitting? That's really hard to figure out. And then the next step, setting a goal to, okay, we want to buy, you know, 2030, reduce that baseline to this level. Um, that's also really hard. And just making that effort to get there is really challenging, especially for companies that are global and multinational and have to rely on things like ocean cargo or air is, you know, a huge polluter. Um, so I think that there's a lot of effort being made, but I think that there's so much that has to be done to really get to a level where we're not seeing these effects of climate change and sea level rise and all of those other impacts. Talk about the issues that have been coming up in your coverage of the cold chain. So I think you touched on it right there, which is demand. There's just so much of it. And that is in part because of healthcare and pharmaceuticals, but also this more growth in online grocery. So, you know, you need more, if you've got something that's being fulfilled online versus being shipped to a store, you need more warehouse space. And with grocery, that tra translates to more cold storage warehouse space. So you just need more space for that. Um, the other thing with the cold chain is that, you know, there's certainly emissions that happen there, but the bigger th problem in my view is there's a great possibility for waste. So any um, small time that those products are spent outside of the temperature range, depending on the product, whatever it might be, that is waste. So you could have a truckload full of fruits and vegetables going from a port to a distribution center and you know, suddenly something happens in that circuitry and the temperature control is turned off. And you've now not only had the emissions going in the truck from the port to the warehouse, but you have all of those products have now been wasted. Are there, are there a couple of innovations you can point to or a couple of concerns you can point to uh, that uh, our listeners should be thinking about? Um, so I think you know one of the concerns is just being able to find that kind of space that meets the specifications. So, you know, some of the um, industrial real estate folks and warehousing folks that we talk to just say that there's so many companies coming in saying, hey, we need a warehouse with <clears throat> this many square feet that is able to have these temperatures of X amount. It's not there yet. It just hasn't been constructed yet or it doesn't, it's not necessarily available. So that's, I think, you know, one of the concerns. And then if you think about within the warehouse, that's kind of interesting too, because a warehouse, a typical warehouse facility would have a lot of automation. They'd have conveyor belts and they'd have robotics and they'd have all of these things so that the workers don't have to, you know, run back and forth constantly picking goods and packing them. And that gets even more challenging in a cold warehouse because 
at certain temperatures, machinery doesn't necessarily operate, or if there's a small leak and it freezes up a gear, you've got to go in and replace that and fix it. And so the efficiency that you're seeing with a lot of more traditional warehouses of, you know, you order something on Amazon, it gets fulfilled, it gets shipped, it's at your door practically in the blink of an eye. That's not necessarily always possible with the cold chain because you don't have that same technology. As a result of that, I, I want to pick up on something you said earlier, which is that the warehousing industry simply hasn't built the capacity for expanded cold chain space. And is the idea that we try not to build brand new warehousing very much in the supply chain, but what retrofit old warehousing? Are there warehouses that are unused all over the country or world that we try to use before we build new ones? What's what's going on there? Why did you mention that? So I think this has to do with um, more of a, a demand issue is that you used to see warehouses in very rural parts of the country because there was lots of space, the rent for the land and the space was cheaper. Um, but now with this essentially Amazon has kind of set the bar for you've got to get your product to consumers in two days or one day or hours. And to do that, you can't be in the middle of nowhere. You have to have a warehouse closer to where the consumers are. So that's been sort of a more recent trend of wanting a warehouse, you know, obviously not in the middle of Manhattan, but close to it. And that enables you to sort of get the goods out of the warehouse and to the consumers and so that location shift there, you know, that's happened more recently, but there hasn't necessarily been the construction to catch up with it yet. Online grocery or e-com grocery or, you know, whatever we're calling that has real challenges in terms of infrastructure build out and its proximity to populations. Certainly. And that's just a factor of, you know, Maybe there was a demand that came about in February for more cold chain warehouses. Well, it takes time to get the permits. It takes time to get the zoning things like you mentioned. It takes time to physically build the warehouse. Um, or if it's a, you know, old warehouse space to retrofit it for whoever the occupant, their specific needs. And so there has in some cases, there have been a couple of companies that have emerged that are sort of a, um, they call themselves like warehouse on demand. And it's so you can sort of rent a property and lease out space. And often those warehouses are shared. Several companies have goods in different spots. So that has become a little bit more popular as a way to mitigate that, you know, not necessarily having the space right away. So Shafali, I'm going to name some companies for you. And let's do some rapid fire. What do you think of these companies as sort of on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being, wow, I am impressed with how they've operated in the last year. And one being like, these guys are clueless. Okay, first one, Amazon. Can I give them a six? You're gonna give them a six, so elaborate. So, you know, certainly they face some challenges in the beginning, um, kind of we touched on earlier with all of the volume, just so much stuff was being ordered and so much stuff that they had to flow through and um, they had to, you know, hire a lot more workers. But um, they have actually hired thousands of people and they've sort of gotten back up to speed and gotten to a hold on their capacity and able to handle a lot of that. So I think 
you know, they, they're not going to get a perfect 10 because they've had some hiccups, um, but they have done a pretty decent job of managing all of the stuff that they have and being able to kind of turn that around. You can't give them a 10 because prime became not prime mm -hmm. for quite a while, really is a way of thinking about it, right? Yes. What used to be two days took two weeks for some chunk of the year earlier this year. Okay. I got that. Let's go UPS. UPS, I'd probably say a seven. Um, kind of similar issues as Amazon, where they just had so much stuff that they couldn't necessarily deliver it or deliver it on time. Or they had to, um, you know, there were reports that they were telling uh, companies, we can't take your volume right now. We just cannot. Um, so that's obviously a, a huge problem for a logistics manager that's trying to ship their goods out. Um, but again, similar story where they've hired thousands of workers and they've managed that ability to send, uh, you know, take goods in and send them back out. And they've also played a, a decently large role in the vaccine process of, you know, making sure that they've got um, cold chain warehouses and air, sh um, air cargo flights ready to go for when that does happen and the distribution is ready to go. Um, okay, cool. Let's go FedEx. I think I would put them a seven as well. Um, they've been pretty similar to UPS, the same volume concerns, um, but certainly have added employees, added automation and made sure those, those goods are getting out. What about the major trucking companies? You know, uh, I don't know, maybe a, a prime or a, you know, the food trucking companies, maybe uh, Cisco or something like that. That one's tough to say because they are pretty private about um, their operations. So, you know, all of the trucking companies kind of face this huge slump actually in volume in March and April. And then it just picked up tremendously. Um, so I think the ones that stand out were some of the ones that were able to, in that slump, get other customers or other business um, and make sure that, you know, they weren't necessarily laying off drivers or parking too many trucks. But, you know, almost all of them laid off at least some and are now in the process of many of them are in the process of rehiring. Um, interesting. Super interesting. Uh, are there any companies, as you look at 3PL, you know, or 4PL, any of these major companies where you say, you know what, they had the best year of any company in the last year. They, they, these guys blew me away with how well they managed the last six to, you know, six to nine months. So I will say one, it's not necessarily a logistics provider, but I do think that um, Target has had a very standout year from a supply chain perspective. Um, and so one thing that they have done for a couple of years now is they have fulfilled a lot of their online orders from stores. And uh, actually it was interesting if you, <laughs> interesting, I'm talking about an earnings call. So, you know, take interesting with a grain of salt. Um, but the executives kept talking about, we have this, it's called ship from store model. And it's great and it's working and we're saving costs on shipments and we're, you know, it's great for us. And the analysts on the calls were so skeptical and they said, this isn't going to work long-term. This isn't going to work at scale. 
And now here we are in a pandemic where many stores either are, are limited hours or consumers just aren't going into them. And Target keeps pushing forward with this ship from store model and it's benefiting them in terms of, you know, bottom line um, and, you know, not having to take things from a central distribution center and then get it to consumers, but fulfilling that from store. Um, and they've seen, you know, I don't have the top, the numbers off the top of my head, but they have seen numerical and financial benefits to, to doing that and kind of almost saying, you know, ha, analysts like proved you wrong. And this certainly informs Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods. And one could see where some of these retailers become sort of hybrids of warehouse and retail, which is a, a sort of a category that I haven't seen covered a lot, but I think could be an emerging category for your work. Um, we just have a couple of minutes left, Shafali. Um, I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to sort of speculate about 2021's major themes. Um, and I guess, you know, my, my particular interests or our particular interests are really around the intersection of the climate space and the pandemic, right? I mean, it's a short-term thing with pandemic, longer-term thing with climate. Are there things we haven't covered that you would like to weigh in on before we, we go? Just one thing related to, to climate and the pandemic, I think, is companies, every decision they make, they have to think about how long-term is this. So climate change, clearly a very long-term issue, an ongoing issue. The pandemic, hopefully a relatively short-term issue, hopefully we'll see an end to it. But a lot of the trends that came about in the pandemic, those might be long-term. So perhaps consumers who always shopped in store before did a little e-commerce buying, discovered they liked it, and they're not going back to the stores even when they do reopen and even when it is safe to go back. And so that's a calculation um, sort of in this, you know, so a big part of supply chain is risk management. And so that's a calculation there is how long term is this risk and how long term is this trend? And do we put the investment forward now to make sure that we're prepared or is this a short term blip? And, you know, once the pandemic's over, we're back to quote unquote normal. I don't know what normal even looks like anymore. If you're if you're the CEO of a retailer, the com complexity, the challenge of making an informed decision about how much to invest in retail space versus e-com spaces is really challenging. And there are a lot of unknowns. I think your point is well taken. Um, let's tell people where they can reach you. Uh, I, I hang, I, I'm a supply chain dive guy, but let's give some URLs and, you know, various social media things. Sure. So our website is uh, supplychaindive.com, or if you're more interested in fleet and transport news, that's transportdive.com. And then I am personally at S DC on Twitter. Uh, I tweet sometimes. And uh, usually it's about supply chain, but sometimes it's about food and wine because those are my personal interests. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn, Shafali Kapadia. Shafali, it has been a great pleasure to have you on Point01. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me.
If you want to stay up to date with Shafali, you can find her work online at supplychaindive.com, or you can receive logistics updates by visiting her on Twitter at DC. The Point of One podcast is presented by Therma, a smart refrigeration monitoring company. To follow Therma's clean cooling initiatives and Point of One content, find us on Twitter at HelloTherma and at Point of One Podcast, or on the web at climate.hellotherma.com.